Good morning. You guys doing well? Happy Labor Day weekend, I guess. This is what this is, isn't it? This weekend, you stayed in town. Cool. Good to see you. Uh, it was really nice this morning, about 4 o'clock. And uh, you weren't up. You missed the best part of the day. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 14. How it changes everything is our current teaching series. And we're talking about sharing your faith this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Acts here. Bring your Bibles with you if you're hanging out with us. If you don't have a Bible, you can pick one up in the information. And uh, that's what we're working through all the way to the end of this book. Let me start off with a couple statements, and I'm going to have you do some interaction here in just a moment. Uh, the essence of the Christian life is, if I were to ask you, what is the essence of the Christian life, what would you say? I would say the essence of the Christian life is fellowship with God. In fact, I would also say that it's absolutely the best thing about the Christian life, is fellowship with God. In fact, once you've tasted fellowship with God, you want everyone else you care about to know it too. That is, in essence, evangelism. That's sharing your faith. In sharing your faith, you need to not only know what you believe, but you need to know why you believe what you believe. <clears throat> The what would be the gospel. The why is why, why should someone uh, give their life to Christ, the gospel? Why, why should someone become a Christian? That would be the, the why. Now, it's important to not only know the why, but also the what, because uh, if you don't know that, you're going to be really ineffective in sharing your faith for the most part. I mean, early on, there's nothing wrong with saying, once I was blind, now I see. But as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you need to have a little bit more than that. And uh, you need to know why and the what of, of your faith, not only so that you'll be more effective in evangelism, but also you won't be defenseless uh, in times of suffering and also when skeptics come to you and ask you really tough questions. And the tendency sometimes when you go through suffering and skeptics confront you over the issues of your faith, I've seen a lot of people defect from their faith as a result of that. Now, here's the question I want you to discuss with the folks sitting around you is why do you think, and statistically it's true, why do you think so many Christians struggle in this area of sharing their faith with others? What do you think? Why is it such a difficult thing for them? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. If you don't know them, get to know them real quick. Okay, you guys coming up with some good answers? Why is it such a struggle? Let me start over here. Anybody want to yell out an answer to me? Anything come to mind? Because they don't know it? Yeah, they don't, they're not knowledgeable in it, don't know how to do it. How about fear? Okay, that's a good answer. How about in here, this, this section here? What did you guys come up with? They'll go to jail. Yeah, probably not in this country, but in other countries, certainly. Yeah, certainly in many, many countries, even to this day, there are Christians being uh, imprisoned, thrown in prison because of being vocal and bold about their faith. What's, what's another reason right over here? What do you guys think? You're afraid of what they think of you. Yeah, absolutely. I came up with my own short list, and uh, I think many struggle because of spiritual lethargy, apathy, 
They're probably not, maybe they cross the line, but they're not walking in vital union with Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, you walk with him, you want to tell the world. I mean, it just, it just goes without saying. And so I think oftentimes there's this apathy or there's this lethargy. A fear of man was another answer that we heard a couple different uh, times. And then also they just don't know, know how. And that's what this message is about. I hope that we're able to kind of tackle all of those or whatever reason you might have or don't have. Or maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. You're not a Christian. We have a lot of uh, non-Christians that come here just to kick the tires or they're invited by their family and friends. And so we're glad that you're here today because you're going to hear a little bit more of what the Christian uh, life is really all about. We're going to kind of dive into the, the philosophy and then the why, uh, what, why, and the how of sharing our faith. And then we'll wrap up this uh, study here by talking about uh, new believers follow-up, what new believers need to have and the importance of, of small groups. That's where we're headed. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Once again, go before the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need as it tells us in God's word. God, thank you that you're here with us this morning. We love you. And God, I pray that through the study of your word that you would indeed help us to uh, get rid of our spiritual lethargy and the fear of man and learn how we can more effectively share our faith. And God, as Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. May that be, the, uh, be consistent with our hearts. That we would want to tell everyone about you as we walk in vital union with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at uh, Acts chapter 14. I'm going to read. You'll see we're going to read a few verses and we'll talk about it. We'll start off in the first section, uh, first seven verses, really talk about the philosophy of sharing your faith. I'm just going to give you some insight here. Let me read it. As you well know, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They go into Antioch in Pisidia, and there's quite a number of people that come to faith, but there towards the end of chapter 13, we see that the Jews incite uh, some people to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went into Iconium. That's where they are now. And this is how the uh, chapter 13 ends. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit in spite of their circumstances. And now we head into our text here this morning, chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. May we speak in such a way that a great number of people come to faith as a result of our words as it says here. And then verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, key phrase here, and poisoned their minds. So they stirred the people up against the message of the gospel, against Paul and Barnabas. And how did they do that? By poisoning their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So may God bear witness of our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ with signs and wonders. I believe that God will do that. Verse 4, but the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of uh, Lyconian, 
and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to continue reading um, for the, the rest of the, the notes here, but let me give you one, two, three, four, five, just five insights from those first seven verses. Here's the first thought, important thought. Unbelief is not devoid of belief, but an alternate belief system. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't believe in, in Jesus, you don't believe in Christianity, I need to tell you that that's, uh, that's not devoid of belief. You're not devoid of belief. You have belief. Everyone has a belief system. In fact, you'll see there in the text we just read, verse 2, notice it said unbelieving Jews. It didn't mean that they didn't believe. They just didn't believe in Jesus. And so unbelief is not devoid of belief, but an alternate belief system. The Bible over and over again, I give you a lot of different cross-references there, Colossians 2, 3 through 4, Romans 12, 2. It says, not, do, not, do not be conformed to this world, which means don't embrace and allow your life to be shaped by, by the belief system of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And it's talking about according to God's Word. In other words, embrace fully a biblical worldview that will change your life and transform your life. Ephesians 4.14 talk about, it, it talks about us growing in the fullness of Christ. In other words, our belief system needs to be about the Scriptures and about Christ. Otherwise, we will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, alternate belief systems. And so, um, everyone has been converted to some belief system. If it's not Christianity, you have been converted to some belief system. When people say Christians shouldn't, shouldn't try to convert people, that statement is in itself an attempt to convert people. Okay? That statement in itself, when someone says you shouldn't be converting people, that statement in itself is, a, is an effort to convert people to your way of thinking. Um. Here's my challenge, and I would give this to you if you're not a believer here this morning, maybe you struggle with your belief. Here's my challenge I give to all non-believers, and that is compare Christianity with your alternate belief system and ask yourself this question, which one carries more weight of probability beyond a reasonable doubt? And what you're going to find if you don't commit intellectual suicide is that beyond a reasonable doubt, Christianity tilts the scale towards probability of the reality and the veracity and the validity of this book and of Christ and of Christianity. I'm convinced of that. I had to do a lot of that research early on in my own faith. And in fact, it's a lack of integrity to re require more justification for Christianity than for your current belief system. I've had people reject Christianity, then I would say, so what do you believe? Well, I'm not really sure what I believe. No, you have a belief system. Maybe you haven't really nailed it down yet, but can it carry the weight that Christianity carries? You lack integrity to hold Christianity up to a standard that you have yet to hold your own current belief system up to. That lacks integrity. So my challenge is, what is your belief system? and compare it to historical Christianity. So unbelief is not devoid of belief, but an alternate belief system. That's important for us to keep in mind. Here's the next point. People often reject or defect from Christianity, not because of defensible arguments, but dogmatic assertions. And you notice the phrase that I pointed out to you in verse 2. It said, poisoned their minds. So they stirred them up and poisoned their minds. This is not... 
objectively poison their minds, but it's more subjectivity. It's more, it's, it's intimidation versus instruction. It's more of an atmosphere than a strong argument. It's more of a dogmatic assertions versus defensible arguments. When you watch PBS or the learning, you know, the learning channel or any of these channels and they start talking about the Christian faith or the Bible, how it's not maybe reliable or there really wasn't this man Jesus or, or whatever, you need to ask yourself, is that a defensible argument that they're presenting to me or is this dogmatic assertions? Nine times out of ten, it's more dogmatic uh, assertions. Even though the person has a PhD or whatever it is, it's more just drawing conclusions, theory, as opposed to something that's actually factual, evidential, historical. You need to think, you need to walk through that. You need to think about what's going on there. Now, this whole tactic goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember when the serpent came into the garden and what he said to, uh, to the woman? First, first and foremost, he said, did God really say that? Now, you'll notice, too, he also gets her to question God's commandments, but also a little bit further down gets, him, gets her to question uh, God's character. Oh, God's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. That is always, always what our adversary will do to us. He will get us to question God's commandments, his word, but ultimately God's character. God's holding out on you. You're going to find life and living out there somewhere apart from God. The essence of sin is an independent attitude towards God. And so that's, uh, and so, so, and, and by the way, the adversary, the serpent, doesn't use arguments. He uses an atmosphere of sneering, which, by the way, it's up in about the 90% range. 90% of our high school graduates that are raised in a Christian home that go into the college and universities usually defect from their faith. That's pretty sad and unfortunate. But, and most of them do that not because of defensible arguments, but because of dogmatic assertions, because there's a sneering. You believe what? You've got to be kidding. It's more of an atmosphere and an attitude as opposed to anything that has a strong argument or factual historical basis to it. So what I'm saying is that you need to know your stuff and don't be intimidated by the sneering that is rampant in our society today as it, as it is directed. It's going to get worse, folks, as it is directed towards Christianity. And you can't be intimidated by that. I had someone one time uh, when I was working with Phoenix Fire, we'd gotten back from a real difficult call and this particular person, I was sharing with them a little bit of what I felt that people needed. They needed the God of the Bible and I talked about that and I mentioned the Bible and this particular person said, ah, oh, people can't believe the Bible. That's been passed on from generation to generation. It's lost its intended meaning from when it was first originally written. And I asked this, uh, it was a female uh, firefighter, I said, uh, I said, so when, when did you come to that conclusion? Was that after comparing our modern-day translations with, our, uh, manu with manuscript evidence? Kind of, I, I asked her this question that was very factual, and she didn't even know what I was talking about. Manuscript evidence? What's manuscript evidence? What's a manuscript? You know, it's kind of like, uh. It's like, why would you say that? You're, you're basing that. Is that did, you, did you hear that? Or are you just coming up with that? Or is that... That was a dogmatic assertion. Not a defensible argument. And so it's interesting how this crowd is being stirred up, poisoned their minds. Listen to me, don't let your mind be poisoned because of the sneering that's going on around you. Don't commit intellectual suicide. And so that's important. Evangelism, next point, evangelism is a process of helping people move closer to Christ through multiple exposures to the gospel. 
You'll notice in verse 3, they, they remained there for a long time. They have this opposition, so they remain there. Why? Because they needed to continue to be consistent. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So in that verse, he's talking about there's a process. All you might be used by God to do is to plant some seeds, but don't stop planting the seeds just because you don't see the fruit. You, God might call you to water those seeds. Don't stop watering those seeds just because you don't see the fruit. We've been fortunate enough to see quite a bit of fruit here at Desert Breeze, but we know that those seeds were planted someplace else and watered maybe even someplace else. And so evangelism is a process of helping people move closer to Christ through multiple exposures to the gospel. Next point, the gospel involves both word and deed. You've heard me say this over and over again. It's throughout the book of Acts. Everything you need to know about evangelism, you learned, you learned in kindergarten. Show and tell. Show them what a friend they have in you and tell them what a friend they have in Jesus. I heard the story a number of years ago. It was an executive working for a major network in New York City. And he had a gal that was working under him and uh, she had this big project that she really blew it big time on and it cost the company just tons of money. She should have lost her job. But her boss... Uh, he absorbed the debt, so to speak. He took up for her. He protected her. She did not lose her job. She was flabbergasted by this. She came in and had a meeting with her boss and said, I'm kind of trying to figure out why, why did you do this? Why would, you, why would you protect me like this? Because in the past, every boss that I've ever had typically would take credit for the good that I did and would always blame me for the bad. And you took, you absorbed the bad for me. Why would you do this? And, and the executive said, well... Since you ask, I need to tell you, a number of years ago, I committed my life to Jesus Christ. And when I began to understand the gospel, faith is that, that Jesus on the cross absorbed all of my sin debt. And I was so blown away by that that I couldn't help but want to be a reenactment of that with all the people that I interact with. And so I absorbed your debt, which is nothing is nothing compared to what he's done for me. And she was blown away by that. She said, I, I want to know this God. And she went to church as a result of that and began to discover and explore the God. And in, that, in the, his behavior and in his actions, he was a reenactment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And using that as an opportunity to point to the reason why I do what I do is that my heart is smitten by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. I mean, you're going to turn heads. When you walk in vital union with Jesus, when, this, when the cross of Jesus Christ, I mean, gets a hold of your life, it's going to change your life. And how you live out your life, and you're going, to, you're going to use opportunities throughout your life, whatever it might be, whether it's promotions or demotions or whatever's going on in your life, you're going to say, hey, it's not about me, it's about Him. And they're going to look at you and go, wow, I want what you have. And it takes time, it's a process, and it's through word and deed. Here's the next point on your notes. Don't argue with resistant people, it reinforces their pride. Doubt will ask honest questions, but unbelief refuses to hear the answers. I typically won't spend a lot of time with people if they want to be combative. And, and the reason why I put that on there is because, uh, because that's what they did. They left the region, they, they found out, they learned that they were going to pounce on them, they're going to mistreat them and stone them, and so they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby. So sometimes you just, 
you leave. You don't argue because that reinforces pride. Pride is seen in, in people's combativeness or defensiveness. And all you do is reinforce their pride within them. Don't argue with resistant people. And so always remember, doubt will ask honest questions, but unbelief refuses to hear the answers. And, and typically, pride makes people very unreasonable and irrational. And uh, that's why it says in Colossians 4, 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What does salt do? It stirs up what? Makes you thirsty, doesn't it? So seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each, uh, each person. My wife and I went to... Uh, I think it's Carolinas or Carolines or something like that, a Mexican food place. How many have ever been to? Apparently, it's owned by Christians, and they shut it down on Sundays because we drove clear across town to go one Sunday, and it was closed. And we said, hey, that's, that's bad. Uh, <laughs> because we drove clear across town. No, actually, we thought it was really good. We thought, that's pretty cool. We forgot that they had closed on Sundays. But when I eat Mexican food, I like to chase it with... Uh, with a soda, like a Coke or a Dr. Pepper or something. Nothing better. There's something about it. I don't know. Maybe it's all that salt and lard and whatever it is. It just to chase it down, just to top it off with sugar, sugar water. But there's just something. What he's saying here is that, that you live your life in such a way, it creates thirst within people. Thirst for the, for the living water, the Lord Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in you, that you're drinking from on a regular basis. And... Uh, so let's continue reading. So let's go to the next section here. Uh, verses 8 through 20 are going to give us a little bit of insight. So that's really the philosophy of sharing your faith. The next section we're going to look at here is the what, why, and how of sharing your faith. So let me continue reading. We'll, we'll read verses 8 through 20. Now at Lister there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus whose temple was the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now, I want you to notice the response of Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What is he talking about there? Anybody know the difference between saving faith and, there's, there, or saving faith, uh, uh, saving grace, and what's the other word for the grace? It's called common grace. 
You guys familiar with common grace? Common grace is God's love being poured upon both believer and non-believer alike. That's what he's talking about here. Don't you see the good that God pours into your life? When you have prosperity, when you have jobs, and you can have babies and homes and families and backyard parties and barbecues and swimming pools and and all kinds of things like that, that's from God. It is his common grace to turn your head towards his saving grace. That's what he's saying. It's God's common grace that should stir up your appetite and say, hey, wait a minute, why is this happening? What's going on? Why do I have all this good in my life? It's because God is a good God and he loves you. And he's trying to get your attention. Sometimes he uses suffering, but he also uses success and prosperity and good things to get our attention. Did you know that? That's what he's saying. So he goes on. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let me just say something that oftentimes, you know, people will try to put me on a pedestal or whatever, and I want to rip my clothes and say, hey, it's not about me, it's about the cross. And I want to refocus people's attention. If anyone tries to elevate you when you begin to bring the good news to them and they confuse you with Christ in some way, that should be your response. It should be the response of John the Baptist who said, may I decrease, may, may he increase. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. That should be the attitude. And that is the attitude, by the way, of those who really have had an encounter with Christ. It's humility. You can typically tell someone who's had an encounter with Christ. They don't want to be put up on a pedestal. They want to point to Christ. They want to point to him. It's not about them. It's not about their show. It's, not, it's about Jesus. It's pointing to him. And so it's always interesting when I, when I visit churches sometimes and I hear what the topic of discussion is, and I've actually heard many pastors talk more about themselves and almost boosting and elevating themselves as opposed to who, they, who we came to really to see and to encounter and to know. I, I mean, it's just interesting how we tend to make it all about us, and we can do that even in church work. It's easy to fall into that, but you'll notice that Paul and Barnabas immediately, no way, don't do this. This is totally wrong. You need to look to him. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I mean, after that, you're thinking, wait, 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 okay, maybe what you were saying about me, Zeus, and yeah, maybe, okay, that's okay. No, he didn't even do that. He's not going to do that. Even it means that they take him out back and they stone him. And he was supposing that he was dead. Check this out. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Let's stop there. Let me give you some points here. So the what, why, and the how of sharing your faith. The what is we are sinners saved by Christ's works and not our works. That is so important for you to understand. If you want to just know the basic gospel message, if you're, okay, someone says, okay, what's the gospel? That's it. It's that simple. We are sinners saved by Christ's works, not our works. I mean, memorize that. Remember that. When someone says, well, what makes you a Christian? We're not saved, we're sinners saved by Christ's works, not our works. That's it. John 3, 16. Notice what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Did you notice that his love and his giving comes before our believing? He loves you. 
He gives to you. He gave his son to you. Oh my goodness. We respond by believing. Oh, and by the way, believing is followed by behaving. Don't focus on your behavior. It's not behavioral modification. If your behavior isn't what it should be, you go back to your believing, and the believing needs to go back to the fact that he loves you and has given all of heaven to you. Oh my goodness. Why wouldn't you enter into that and want that? And the more you begin to see that and live in the reality of that, the more it begins to change your behavior. And you can take a beating in life. You can take a beating in life as Paul did. And and he's going to get back up and he's going to go back out and continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the love and the generosity of God that has so filled his life, he's believed in that and it changes his behavior. So, hey, let it... Let all hell break loose in his life. That's, that's really what you see here. Here's the next point on your notes. Why? Why believe the gospel? This is the apologetics part of it because it's head sound. You keep hearing me say this week in, week in and week out. I say it different ways, but it's head sound. It's credible and it's heart satisfying. Head sound, yeah. The gospel is supported by strong evidence. And so when you're sharing that with your with your family or friends, they should receive it because it's true. It's true. It's reliable. It's historical. It's evidential. But it's heart satisfying because the gospel answers their deepest problems and issues. They should receive it because they need it. There's no greater purpose. There's no greater love. There's no greater peace in the midst of turmoil. There's not a better way to, to, to be a, a great parent or to have a solid marriage when you begin to apply the principles of God's word and the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to your life. No, no better way than what the Bible says about our finances or how to fix broken relationships. And so it involves both. It involves our head and our heart. And you can reason to a point of probability, but it takes commitment at some point to take you to a, a place of greater assurance and heart satisfaction. I like what C.S. Lewis uh, says about that because he kind of combines it both in a statement that he made. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, that's the head, its head sound, but because by it I see everything else. That's the heart satisfying. In other words, it's the only thing that's really helped me to make sense of life. Here's the next one. How do you receive it? You turn from these vain things, false gods, to the living God. That's your next fill in the blank. So how do you receive it? And really salvation is that we turn from whatever it is that is our salvation. If you don't find Jesus, something else will be your Jesus. As I said last week, as we've been talking about this, and it's called idolatry. Everyone lives for something, and if it's not God, it's an idol. If you're not living for God, if you're not living for Jesus Christ, then then you have an alternate belief system. You are living for something. Otherwise, you're going to put a bullet in your head. You're out of here. There's no reason to be living. But there's some kind of a reason for your existence. And, And so everyone lives for something, and if it's not God, it's an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God or anything you find more more pleasure in than in God. How would I know? How do you know whether something is an idol? Okay, what you think about what dominates your thoughts, 
Here's how you know, is that when you lose it, when it's lost, you're not just sorrowful, you're in despair. There's a major difference. Certainly we take hits in life and we're going to have sorrow, but it moves to this place of despair because all of your hopes and dreams are in that. By the way, I typically look at my inordinate emotions. Regular emotions are normal, but when they become inordinate, they dominate my thoughts, my mind, my life. That's telling me a little bit about how much of my heart I've given to those things. And that's what he's saying. Turn from these vain things, these false gods, to the living God. Next point in your notes, how to share it. Share it with humility, hope, and courage. Those three words, humility, hope, and courage. First Peter 3.15, it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You don't ever shove the Bible down anybody's throat. You don't, it's not the hellfire brimstone. When I worked out at Palo Verde for a number of years, it was interesting. There were some street preachers that would stand at the gate and, and bark at people. I mean, they would just like, you're going to hell, and you're this and that. And I remember taking them off to the side trying to talk to them, and they said that I was going to go to hell too. And uh, So it was really interesting. They were very combative, and it really goes contrary to what the Bible says, particularly that verse that I put on there, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The word reason there is where we get our word apologetics. Reason, a defense, a why. It's head, sound, heart satisfying. Give them specifics because it's true. And guess what? It's relevant. It's changed my life. I did the research. I read a book. I looked at it. It's, it's, it's got a solid foundation. But it says to do that with gentleness and respect. And the gospel tends to produce humility, hope, and courage within you. I kind of wonder when people come off like that, what part of the gospel do you not understand? Because humility, I mean, how could you ever feel superior to anyone if you remember the cross? You were so sinful, Jesus had to die. When you cop an attitude, when people cop an attitude, I'm right, you're wrong, and I love telling you about it, is the attitude of someone who doesn't understand God's grace. But humility, it produces humility. And hope, if you ever look at anyone with contempt, or hopelessness, like they're a hopeless case, kind of an attitude. If you ever, if you ever tend to do that, you know, of being saved, that they're hopeless in being saved, it's because you have lost touch with the miracle of your own salvation. And as it relates to courage, how could you ever feel fearful of anyone if you remember the cross? He loved you so much, he wanted to die for you. See, and the, and the fear comes from this, and this is how we get rid of the fear. We're afraid to share our faith because we fear what people think of us. That was a couple of the answers that were given. Well, it's because we get our self-image from people as opposed to God. Start getting your self-image from, from God, I'll guarantee you nothing in this world will intimidate you. If you fear God, you will fear nothing or no one. But see, what happens when I start feeling intimidated by people, I just, I need to come back to the cross. <laughs> I need to come back to who God is and, and what he's done for me. And so, that's the, that's the what, why, and how of sharing 
your faith. Let me knock out the rest. You can, uh, you can kind of read the rest, verses 21 through 23 on your own. Let me read that. That's a quick read here. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconian and to Antioch, and strengthening the souls. This is kind of a follow-up. This is what young believers need. Whether you're a young believer or an old believer, we all need this in our lives, and, but it's important for young believers uh, especially to get this good, solid foundation. He's giving us some really good insight here. So when they had preached the gospel to the city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Stop there. Let me give you these next points. So, What do you need as a believer if you're going to grow in your faith? You've made a confession of faith. Maybe this morning would be the morning that you make a confession of faith in Jesus. Praise God. That would be awesome. So what's your next step? Here's your next steps. That's what he spells it out for us. By the way, conversion without discipleship is like a toddler abandoned by parents to fend for himself. I hear a lot of churches, they say, oh, we're just into conversion. Well, that's not the whole deal, what God has called us to. We're into discipleship. It involves conversion helping people to come to faith and, and having a water baptism for them. But it's, it's teaching them everything that Jesus taught us. That's 28th chapter of Matthew. He says that. It's, it's discipleship. And it's, it's abandonment. I mean, I, I think of my, my, uh, my grandkids. Uh, we took them. We had pancakes in the playground on, on Friday morning. And, I mean, can you imagine? I've got a four-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old a little Braden and Cohen, and my wife and I show up to the playground and just kind of kick them out of the car. Okay, have fun. We'll be back in about six hours <laughs> if you're still here. And oftentimes we do that. I mean, that's frightening. And we do that to new converts, new people in the faith. And this is what he's saying. Is this is what you need, is that you need to grow in your passion for Christ. That's what he's saying. Strengthening the souls. The word soul is your, your desire, your affections. Same word is used in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily. In other words, from a passion for Christ. Next one is you're going to grow in the knowledge of the truth. Man, you need to know what this book says. Otherwise, you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. My wife and I were out working yesterday, and two Mormon girls came up. And uh, man, I'll tell you what, they almost got my wife converted. It's just... uh, I'm really frightened by that. No, my wife is way too solid in the truth of God's Word and understanding where they're coming from and has a good solid foundation. My heart breaks for them. My heart goes out to them. I pray for them because I believe they're being deceived like many who are following false belief systems. And so you need to know the truth. The truth brings freedom to your life. To the degree you don't know that truth is to the degree that you have error and it's creating all sorts of wrecking havoc in your life. Next one, be prepared for suffering. Did you notice what he said there? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You're going to face suffering. And by the way, suffering will reveal to you your passion for Christ and your knowledge of his truth. If you defect through suffering from the faith, you're shaking your fist at God, whoa, Where's your passion for Christ? Where's your knowledge of the truth? You don't have much of a foundation. So that's what he's saying here. And then you need leaders who will care for you. Did you notice that they appointed leaders? So we need that. And then Paul wraps it up here in this study 
uh, verses 24 through 28. Let me read that. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to uh, Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they're going all the way back. This is the conclusion of their first missionary journey. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and there remained no and there remained no little time with the disciples. Here's your last point. Support and accountability isn't a luxury, but a necessity, not just to survive, but to thrive in the Christian life. Paul and Barnabas returned to their sponsoring church in Antioch, where they reported and encouraged them greatly with the news, and they were also supported and held accountable. Important stuff. I'm going to invite our worship band back up. We're going to in with that song we sang earlier, if God be for us, who can be against us, which was an awesome song. But let me just press this last point kind of deeper into your heart, is that, uh, and I shared this uh, last week, a couple weeks ago, don't be surprised by opposition because life is more a battleground than a playground. You're going to face opposition. You need support. You need accountability. So let me ask you this question. Did you notice in verse 20 when Paul was taken out the city and he was stoned? Did you notice this verse? But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby, and they continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's my question for you. When you get the living daylights beat out of you by life, who is it that comes around you and supports you and lifts you back up? I mean, he was left for dead. But let me read it again. But when the disciples gathered about him, who do you have in your life that gathers about you and breathes life back into you and gets you back up so that you can go back out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Connection party next weekend. We want you to get connected. Life change happens best in small groups. Desert Breeze is a place where strangers become friends and friends become codependent. And uh, just to see if you're awake, they become family. They become family. Let's become family. Let's support one another. Let's encourage one another so we can come out of here and proclaim that, that God is for us, not against us. Stand with us as we sing this song.